daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Malah, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. Graham Watson is going to give us a sermon this morning. Thanks, Helen. That is a lot of Old Testament names. We have a ranking system, right? So when the passage has a lot of Old Testament names, we call on Helen because she always delivers. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to say Zalofa had, not Zolo, or yeah, Zalofa had. Um, but if you want, we'll get into the specifics later. That's what discussion is for. So these are a lot of names that we don't hear a lot in church. Noah, Mala, Hogla, Milka, Tirza, the daughters of Zelophehad. Uh, and this summer, we are going to hear a bunch of these names that we don't often encounter uh, in children's books of the Bible. The series we're doing this summer is called Reading Between the Lines. And it's our hope that we're going to kind of dive deep into some of these lesser-known stories of people in the Bible who have great messages and great meaning for us that we just don't often get to. People like me who grew up in a church culture of, you know, flannel graphs and Bible stories know a few names like David and Noah, Elijah, Paul, Jesus. Um, but these are some ones that we don't know as well. If you're new to Christianity or if this is kind of all new to you, awesome. Just jump right in and hear some great stories that the rest of us have tend to neglect. Um, and we're going to see what they have for us. And I think it's important for us to think about this because... I think um, when we look at stories like this, to me, this is a testament to the fact that I think God is okay with the Bible we have. Like, that, that these stories are meant to be taught, that they are good for teaching, as Timothy says, and that there's a lot we can get out of them. And I think it's important for those of us, especially our parents, to think about what stories do we teach our kids? When we're passing on this faith, when we are instructing our children, what stories do we use? What take primary focus during bedtime, story time? And maybe some of these are worth telling as we orient our children to the Christian faith as well. I think some of these stories that we're going to look at over the summer would be great additions to children's Bible storybooks, and maybe you'll agree or disagree with me at the end of this. So this summer, uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to hear a lot of funky biblical names that we don't hear a lot, and we're going to dive into the truth of these messages. And so the first one this morning is the daughters of Zelophehad. So once again, their names are Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Tirza. Apparently in the Bible, Noah is a guy-girl name. Didn't know that. It's the Taylor-Sam equivalent of the ancient Hebrew landscape. Uh, 
And this story does not appear in the common lectionary. So the common lectionary would be kind of a series of weekly and daily Bible readings that a lot of church denominations use so that pastors kind of have some accountability to be preaching regularly through different parts of the Bible. And it's kind of on a four-year cycle. And the Daughters of Zelophehad is not in the lectionary. So if you uh, have grown up in a church that uses the lectionary, or that's kind of a common way for people to discern teaching series and things like that, you won't have heard this story. So let's get into it together. So I just want to set up the context for what's going on um, prior to this passage that we've just had read. So the people of Israel have left slavery. They were in Egypt, and they've left slavery. God has kind of promised them this land, and they're on the way to the land. And then in Numbers, the first half of the book, is a lot of people really doubting that. They're doubting um, that God is going to deliver them. They're doubting that they, you know, they're saying they should have gone back to Egypt. They're not really keen on what's happening. And so they need to spend some time wandering in the wilderness. And this generation of kind of doubters is sort of dying off, really. Um, so this new generation that is willing to kind of commit and put faith in God rises up. And that's sort of where we find this story in the Bible. Uh, during this time out of Exodus, in this in-between time before they arrive at this new land, this promised land that God has given them, or says he will give them, that some believe. And so one of the big concerns in the ancient world is land distribution. This is people live and die by the land, right? If you don't have a place for your flocks, if you don't have a place to start planting olive trees for your grandchildren, what are they going to do? Land is, uh, is a huge part of their culture. It's probably one of the, the primary themes of the Old Testament is who gets what land and how does this work, and this promise of land is a huge, huge deal for them. And the Old Testament is full of rules and regulations that I, I think for a lot of Christians, we, when we think of Bible rules, it's a lot of like moral personal behavior. But the Old Testament especially has a lot of rules around economics and land distribution and how society should function together when it comes to their property and their interaction with one another. Their society was a theocracy, right? God is supposed to be the one in charge. And it's interesting to note some of God's economic policies. In the passage just before this, it talks about distributing the land evenly. There's 12 tribes. Each tribe is supposed to have the same amount of land. And so that no one group can kind of amass more than another, right? This is supposed to be equal land. And they've got a rule built in um, called the Jubilee, that every 50 years, the land is supposed to, it's supposed to kind of go back to zero, and everyone's supposed to go back to their ancestral land and kind of start the acquisition of new property over again. So things can't get too, too out of control with one group really taking control of the rest. Uh, and this is hard, I think, for some of us to connect with. Um, for me personally, I don't have a big connection to land. Um, I grew up in Guelph, Ontario. Um, my parents are still in the home I grew up in, so there's a bit of a sentiment feeling there. But when I think about family land, um, this is a, a farm. It, the barn's not there anymore, but a, a land that would have been on my dad's side years ago. And then the next picture, uh, I thought this was really cool. My sister took a trip to the Netherlands, and this is the property that my opa grew up on, uh, which is neat for me to see right, where my family comes from, but I have no connection to this place, and there's no sense for me that I'm going to inherit that land someday or that that piece of physical land that I need to care for will be involved with my future generations. I'm completely removed from that. I've never been there. There's a picture my sister took while on a vacation. And I imagine a lot of us are the same way. Not everyone, but some of us, this idea of land being so central to identity and family well-being is hard for us to grasp, but it was a huge part of their life. And so there's a few laws that come into play in this story. Land is supposed to stay in the tribe it was given for fear that one tribe would amass more than another. And the way they made sure this happened was they passed land down from father to son. That made sure that land stayed in the family dynamics. 
And so this is where the daughters of Zelophehad come in because they've got an issue with this. Their fathers died, and they are daughters. They're set to lose out on this promised land because of the laws they have in place. The laws that say that only sons can inherit land. They have no brothers. These women are subject to a system that does not see them as equal shareholders. Their role, I think, in the culture at the time, right, women were more social ties, right? If, if a daughter was to marry another family, chances are I'm going to probably have good relationships with that family because my daughter is there. And they were sort of, their role within the society was not equal to men. There were very different roles. And so they were not able to own property. They were, their function was more of a social glue in some ways between these, these different tribes and families. They had to leave their own families to join another. And they're unaccounted for in this land distribution. They're left out and they are kind of falling through the cracks in this system. And, and we can kind of scoff at this a little bit, right? We can say, oh my goodness, how, how ridiculous that they couldn't own land. But I don't know if we're that far off in some ways. I think there's still a lot of injustice and, and cracks that people fall through today. Uh, it, it's not been very long that women can vote in this country. Uh, in fact, it wasn't even until 1960 that suffrage was extended to First Nations women without that requiring them to give up their treaty status. Like this is, people have been alive in this time that this has been going on in our society. And we have a tendency as humans to create systems and structures that help us function as big units, right? We need to figure out ways and rules that we can agree on so that we can function in bodies bigger than a family unit. But what happens is that it usually works out pretty well for the majority of us at the expense of a smaller group, right? We don't have to look very far to see this. Every time our governments change where they're going to put money, somebody is upset because somebody is now losing out that was fine before. Every time we build more condos and things in downtown Kitchener or reinvest into our tech hubs, there's a group of people that have been in Kitchener for a really long time that are now kind of moving out and aren't able to live there anymore. I'm guilty of this sometimes, and I think our society is. We often see our houses as investments rather than homes. Uh, and, and people can get left out if that's the mindset we start to develop. And so these five women, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Tirza, and Milka, need to do something about it. And so they confront Moses and the people. The verse says that they stood before Moses, Eliezer, the priests, the leaders, and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. He died for his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. They stood before Moses and the people. If you look back earlier in Numbers, getting up in front of the whole group and kind of lodging a complaint is not a good time. In Numbers 11, the people come to Moses and they say that they are hungry. They're not trusting God for food provision. They're hungry. And what do they get? They get a plague sent on them. <laughs> In Numbers 12, Miriam, Moses' sister, is kind of questioning, like, did God really just speak through you? And the Bible tells us she got leprosy. In Numbers 16, Korah, who's mentioned in this passage, and a few others also doubted Moses' leadership. They were kind of saying, why is he the leader? Why not someone else? And it says that the ground swallowed them up. So questioning authority in the book of Numbers is pretty dangerous, probably a little more dangerous than it is today. These women in challenging authority, have risked their lives, and, but together they have stepped up before a society that counts them as less than human, and they've advocated for their rights. They risk being ostracized, removed from their community, and possibly even death 
as they've seen before in their community in the story of Numbers. And they argue with the law, right? There seems to be two laws at play here. Land staying equally among family units or being passed down through sons. Which law is more important? And we encounter this so many times in the Bible. And really in our society as well, right? Technically, laws and rules are meant to guide these deeper underlying principles. Which ones should take precedent? Which should form our community norms as we as a group figure out how to be the family of God together? As in their case, right now, they're trying to figure this out. For us, the Bible does not speak directly to every situation. And as we see this morning, this challenge can come from the text itself, right? I love the Bible for this. I love that within the Bible, in this story, we see people wrestling with the law and trying to discern how to live it out well together. The function of wisdom, I think, in the Bible is key to note here. The function of wisdom is often discerning which laws should hold out when they come into conflict with one another. So I'm reminded of this. We have a poster in our house called How to Build Community, and it's really cute. There's all these things about turning off your TV and helping um, kids at school and walking dogs. Um, and, you know, if you don't, you know, if, you've, if you see something that's broken, you should just fix it, whether you broke it or not, right? Let's build community together. And partway down the poster, there's a couple rules. We have, in the middle here, we have a rule that if you want to build community, you should turn up the music. We also have a rule that if you want to build community, you should turn down the music. So which one of these is right? Well, we have to look at the underlying rule here, right, of how to build community. Sometimes our community may call for us to turn up the music, and sometimes we need to turn it down. And wisdom is discerning when to apply both of those principles. When should one hold out above the other? And we see this in the Bible as well, right? In Proverbs, we have a great little fun example that sometimes people use to be like, oh, look at how the Bible contradicts itself, right? We have Proverbs 26, 4 to 5, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. And then the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Are these contradicting each other? Or is the whole point of Proverbs, a book of wisdom, for us to learn and discern when these are appropriate to be carried out and which um, situations call for which response? And I would challenge uh, the youth in the building right now. I've given you a summer challenge to read the Gospels, and I hope some of you are taking me up on that. And I'd love for you to write down or just keep in mind as you're reading how many times people come to Jesus with these technical questions about which rule should apply in what situation, and how many times Jesus kind of wisely confronts the person and gets kind of below the technical rule that they're asking about into this deeper need of the heart that is underneath the reason for these rules. And that's, I think, what we have going on here with the daughters of Zelophehad. And Moses, the story says, is unsure what to do. He brings the case to the Lord. And he confronts God. Now, some rabbis in, the, in kind of their commentary on this story have said that uh, this shows that the women are better at determining the law than Moses is. They come with a good question, and they seem, you know, know what to do with it. Moses has no idea. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to discern the appropriate response, so he goes to God. And so the verse says, Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. 
You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their father on to them. You shall also say to the Israelites, if a man dies and has no son, you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughter. The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. They will receive an inheritance. And furthermore, because of their courage, because of their willingness to stand up and question something that didn't seem to fit, the law is changed so that future women in their position do not have to fight to be seen in the same way. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah have already done the hard work for those future generations. I think this is a story worth telling our daughters and sons when we put them to bed. Where do you need to gather some sisters at your side and stand up? And do you believe that God will hear you? Or have you given up? I think it's probably fair to say that many of us sitting here have a deep wound from the church. We've maybe been told that, well, God's ways are not our ways, or that's just the way it is, and to stay quiet and kind of toe the party line. Many of us can live in fear that if we bring these big questions of justice to God in prayer, that we might get leprosy and get swallowed up. The fear of the Lord can become being quite afraid of God. When multiple laws and different situations come into play, the easy thing to do is to either give up, right? But they're just kind of quietly staying in the pew and being afraid, or maybe by throwing up our hands and leaving church altogether. I think what's harder, as we sung about this morning, is to continue to ask and wait for an answer. The name Israel, the name of this big tribal community that's sharing land, Israel, the family of God, that Jesus has opened up for us as well, the name means to wrestle with God or to contend with God. And this passage can have us raising questions. Is, is God changing his mind here? Is there a tendency to reinterpret the past for the sake of the new? One commentator, uh, Dennis Olson, writes that God's word is not a sterile and entrenched legalism, but a robust and living tradition that leans towards the future in, hopes, in hope and anticipation. I'll read that again. God's word is not a sterile and entrenched legalism, but a robust and living tradition that leans towards the hope, the future in hope and anticipation. The people have received these stone tablets from Mount Sinai, right? And God could have called it there. He could have said, you've got these stones. Just go with them, and I'll stay up here on the mountain, and you'll be fine. You can figure it out and keep wrestling through it. But instead, as we read in Numbers, God goes with them in this tent of meeting. God is still accessible to the people so that when these kind of situations come up where they need to wrestle through the implications of the law, he is there to be interacted with. And if you take nothing else from the sermon this morning, I want you to take this. I want you to know that you are allowed to wrestle with these big questions of faith and that you can wrestle with them here in this community. It doesn't mean I'm going to always agree with you, but let's help one another grow in wisdom. And I think this story to me illustrates that we don't have to be afraid to bring these big things to God. The Bible does not speak directly to many questions we now encounter about how to live rightly. We have a global economy, right? Everyone's pretty connected. We have a climate crisis. We have ways of structuring our family that they had never heard of. And we need to wrestle. What have been the technical practices that we have committed to and often lost sight of the deeper need 
or the heart underneath why those practices have been put in place. And the challenge when we ask that is that the, the question that comes after that is, are we willing to respect the answer that we're given? If we come back to the story of Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah, they, uh, we come back to them in the very last chapter of Numbers. And some people are raising questions about them. Okay, so they're going to inherit some land. So what happens now if they go and marry outside of their tribe? Certainly they would be very desirable wives, given that they had property at the time. Won't that mean their land goes with them if they leave our tribe? Doesn't that kind of contradict the other rule? What do we do now, right? This is this kind of nitty-gritty, how do we live this out as a community? And so the end of Numbers tells us this. Then Moses commanded the Israelites according to the word of the Lord, saying, The descendants of the tribe of Joseph are right in what they are saying. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whomever they think best. Only it must be into a clan of their father's tribe that they are married, so that no inheritance of the Israelites shall be transferred from one tribe to another. For all Israelites shall retain the inheritance of their ancestral tribes. Every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the Israelites shall marry one from the clan of her father's tribe, so that all Israelites may continue to possess their ancestral inheritance. No inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the Israelites shall retain its own inheritance." The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded. Let them marry whom they think is best. But remember, there are these deeper principles at play of equality and justice. And they are faithful to this. Their response is still to be faithful. They're not throwing up their hands and walking away because they don't like it. But they understand the deeper intention and the hope that this law is meant to provide for the people. These women were absolutely right to confront the law they did and absolutely right to respect the one that they did follow. The deeper laws and truth are important to hold on to. And we follow a God who we get to, as we sung about this morning, call Emmanuel, God with us. This sense that God is still with us and we can still be wrestling and having a dialogue as a community together and with God is still present today. God is not up on a mountain having delivered stone tablets to us, but is in a tent walking with us, and now in the form of Jesus Christ, uh, who we believe to be the Son of God. And that God promises that he will be with us as we step into these places, when we step up in front of communities to confront injustice. I'd love to pray for us this morning, and then we'll have some time of discussion. God, I know for me, sometimes it is just so tough to discern your will and to discern as a community what is appropriate to hold on to and what is appropriate to let go. And God, I pray that we would be Israel, that we would be ones who wrestle with you, that we'd wrestle with one another and ultimately trust that you are Lord and that you are good and that these deeper rules at play are for our benefit. God, I pray that we would hold it out and stick to it when it's hard to see how this is good and that you'd be with us as we go about our week this week together. Amen.